Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 4. The message is entitled, What About Election? Paul has expressed his gratitude to the Father for the benefits in salvation um, in verse 3 of chapter 1. We saw the source of salvation, the sufficiency of salvation, and the sphere of salvation. Remember, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the process of salvation. The Father, again, is verse 3 through 6, the Son, 7 through 12, and the Spirit, 13 and 14. Each one ends with the understanding that salvation is to the praise and the glory of God alone. Verse 6, 12. And 14. And again, keep in mind that verse 3 to 14 is one complete sentence in the Greek. So as we take a verse or two at a time, make sure you see it as part of the whole um, as we're moving through it. Paul indicated that God has blessed us with every spiritual um, blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So now he begins to indicate some of the blessings. The first blessing that he presents to us is the doctrine of election, which looking at it from verse 4 to 6, it's characterized by the proclamation of election in verse 4, the explanation about election in verse 5, and the exaltation for election in verse 6. What we want to do is look just at the first part of the blessing, at the proclamation of election, which is marked by three truths. Let me read here verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so the first part of the blessing here. The proclamation of election is marked by three truths. First, the one who did the choosing, the first part of four. Secondly, the time of the choosing. And thirdly, the purpose of the choosing. So the one who did the choosing comes first. Notice the Apostle Paul revealed that the Father is the one who chose us. Listen to his words, just as he chose us. This is indicated by the personal pronoun he. The Father, remember, is the source of salvation as we pointed out in verse 3. The Father blesses with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. The word choose means to simply pick out. The tense is the indicative error's middle voice, and to us it doesn't make that much importance, but in the Greek it does because it indicates that he did it by and for himself. The middle voice always speaks of the individual acting for himself, okay? And it's very evident. The word is found 21 times in the New Testament. Three times it is used for choosing of the 12 apostles. In John 6, 70, 13, 18, and 15, 16. Now, the Apostle Paul revealed the Father chose us sovereignly. 
The sovereignty of God is the right to do as he pleases with his creation. In the next verse, verse 5, he says, uh, according to the good pleasure of his will, that also indicates sovereignty. The sovereignty of God means he can do as he wills, when he wills, to who he wills, as often as he wills. And yet he will never violate his attributes nor the free will of man. Because that would make him unjust. And it would make him unholy. The sovereignty of God is manifested here in perfect wisdom resulting from all of his attributes that are to perfection. God sovereignly makes all the right decisions in perfect justice, having the benefit of mankind in mind. God never does anything just for himself. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need protection. He doesn't need advice. He doesn't need a car. He doesn't even need a friend. He just is. He's eternal. Now keep in mind that the sovereignty of God, like foreknowledge, never violates man's free will. This is very important that you keep this always in mind. It is the major theme as he deals with Israel and the Gentiles, if you remember, in Romans chapter 9, God's sovereignty. In regards to Esau and Jacob, in Romans 8, 6, 11 through 16, dealing with the nation of Esau, Edom, and the nation of Jacob, Israel, not individual salvation. It's dealing with nations. He quotes Malachi, and he quotes, Malachi quotes Genesis. And it goes to nations, not individual salvation there. But also in regards to Pharaoh, who hardened his own heart, then God honored his decision and strengthened his will, Romans 8, 17 and 18. So in other words, God didn't force Pharaoh to harden his heart. He hardened his own heart. And after hardening his heart over and over again, God says, now the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, strengthened his decision. So man can resist God. Man resists God every day. You and I resist God at times as Christians. How much more the unbeliever? He illustrates it in Romans 8, 19 through 24 by the illustration of the potter and the clay. Now seeing that God is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, possessing foreknowledge, the epitome of perfect wisdom, that he's eternal, infinite, immutable, should his sovereignty worry us regards to whether it is fair or just? No. Because he can do nothing evil. He can do nothing to violate his attributes, his justice, his holiness. Notice the Apostle Paul here reveals the Father chose us in relationship to the person of Jesus. Two words, in Him. It refers to the union of 
Christ in us by being in Christ. It's mentioned six times in the first three verses. In Him we have redemption, Ephesians 1.7. In Him, those in heaven and on earth will be gathered to Him, 1.10. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, 1.11. In Him, we trusted after hearing the word of truth, the gospel, 1.13. In Him... We have boldness and access with confidence through faith. Ephesians 3.12 So those chosen in Him is synonymous with in Christ. God's divine election and man's free will has been explained as two parallel lines that will never cross on this side of heaven but once we get there we'll see how they cross but here they're parallel we don't see we can't reconcile them at times as we'll see the one thing we do understand by the doctrine of election is that it does not mean what the first and second point of the five point Calvinism teaches under the acronym of TULIP the first point is an erroneous definition of the total depravity of man. Teaching man is so dead that he cannot respond to the gospel. So God has to make him alive first, then give him faith, then as a result he's born again. Teaching the inability of man. But it's never presented or, or found in the scriptures. It's not a biblical truth. It can't be found at all. The Bible never says we have an ability to respond. Ever. In fact, the prefix total is unbiblical. All the prefix of the total of the uh, tulip are not biblical. What follows is, and we'll prove that, but not the way they define it. The scriptures say we are dead in trespasses and sins in Ephesians, as we'll see, 2.1. But it doesn't say we can't respond to the gospel. As the Holy Spirit illuminates and convicts us through the preaching of the gospel. God initiates through the gospel. And we are illuminated by the Spirit. And we either believe we're sinners and repent. Or we say, I'm not a sinner and I reject. You experience that. I experience that. God didn't save me without my will. Or apart from my will. And yet the flip side of that is we're seeing tonight is election. So they teach two births, which is foreign to scripture, contradicting the order. Because they say he regenerates you, then he gives you faith, then you're born again. My Bible says that faith comes first, then regeneration comes second. And that's all that happens. So it's unbiblical definition. Now, the second point of Calvinism equally is wrong, reinforces the first point by teaching unconditional election. That God elected some to be saved while electing the majority of the rest to be damned without ever giving them a chance to be saved. Just that simple statement would 
should cause you to be freaked out. Because if both groups deserve hell, and God sovereignly, as they say, chose a few to go to heaven and condemned the rest, then God would be a respecter of persons, unjust and unholy. He couldn't be just. He would be violating his holiness. Again, the prefix unconditional election or unconditional is not biblical. Election is, but not unconditional. And yet the person is condemned by God for failing to respond and believe, yet they were elected by God to not respond and not believe. That makes it even worse. That's adding insult to injury now. <laughs> it's in their own writings. R.C. Sproul declares, quote, A cardinal point of Reformed theology is the maxim, regeneration precedes faith. Their own words. My Bible says faith precedes regeneration. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Titus 3, 5. Romans 10, 17. Their analogy of equating a spiritual dead person to a physical dead body is an unequal parallel. It breaks down. The Apostle Paul told the Athenians, listen carefully in Acts 17, 30. That man can believe and respond to the gospel. He hears. Listen to him carefully. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. How can God command all to repent if he predestines some to not respond? It's the complete contradiction. The doctrine of election is biblical. The doctrine of election or predestination, as we'll see in the next verse next time, focuses on the divine side of salvation. He being the initiator through the proclamation of the gospel. God is always the initiator. Always. We don't initiate. He initiates. The doctrine of free will focuses on the human side of salvation being the responder to God's initiation through the gospel and the conviction of the Spirit of God. The two doctrines are not in contradiction to each other, but rather complementary to each other and biblical. The two doctrines are scriptural, but we cannot understand them by our logical or rational process of thinking to see how they reconcile because we're not omniscient and we don't have foreknowledge. Simple. John fifteen sixteen, Jesus says, You did not choose me, I chose you to the apostles and disciples. Election is very scriptural, 1 Peter 2. Elected according to the foreknowledge of God. We'll get into that more next time. Election is based on God's foreknowledge, Romans 8, 29. So the one who did the choosing was God. But it doesn't exclude my free will to respond and my human responsibility to respond. And they're not contradictory. Now notice secondly, 
the time of the choosing. The Apostle Paul revealed that God's sovereign choosing was before creation, prior to the time as we know it. His words are, before the foundation of the world. The particular time is before the creation, God being omniscient. He knows all things, past, present, and future. He cannot learn anything. We can't even think in those concepts. The word for knowledge is a noun. Keep that in mind, not a verb. It is not causative, but rather describes the thing. A noun is a person, place, or thing. A verb is an action. So be careful of anybody who uses uh, foreknowledge as an action, as a verb, that it causes people to do something. No. Foreknowledge simply knows beforehand what's going to happen. It's a noun. It describes a thing. Now, God having foreknowledge, the result of his omniscience, he knows all things beforehand. So nothing surprises him, nothing catches him by unawares. Now, you and I are caught unawares. Even when we plan out something completely and all of a sudden, some, wow, I didn't catch that. I didn't, I didn't think of that. I, God has never said that. God has never said, Gabriel, you know, I never thought about that. That's a good idea. The inception of creation is stated to be in the beginning in Genesis 1.1, referring to the framework of creation. Marking out the starting point of creation, this point marks the introduction of time as man knows it, chronologically, linear, running from present to future. The implication being that time as we know it did not exist in this fashion prior to creation. Time itself being temporal was created and came to be at a set point at its introduction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Gospel of John opens up with the words, in the beginning was the word. The Greek article is not present before the word beginning. Therefore, the declaration indicates going back earlier than this first verse of Genesis, the timeless eternity before time. Genesis 1 is the beginning of chronological time. John 1 1 is eternity before chronological time. 1 John 1 1 is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Three different beginnings. Now, the Apostle Paul noticed referring the timeless eternity prior to the inception of time as we know it implies that time will one day come to an end. You cannot have a starting point without an ending point or, or a beginning time without an ending time. Just as you cannot have a starting point without an ending point. There's the start and finish. The nature of time as man knows it is temporal. Time is running down. 
We got up sometime this morning, five, six, four, depending what time you got up. It's um, it's ten to eight. We've only got about four minutes, uh, four hours, and ten minutes left of this day left. The morning has passed. The afternoon's passed. The evening is well on its way, and night's here. <laughs> Past, present, and future. That's the three tenses that we look at time, because it's chronological. And once time is gone, it's gone. You don't get that back. Your house burns down, you can build another one. Your car gets smashed up, you fix it, get another one. But once time is gone, you never get time back. It's the most valuable thing that you possess. And I, time. Now, the Apostle Paul, referring to eternity prior to the beginning of time, can only lead us to one conclusion by way of deduction here. If time was introduced at a set time, and if time is temporal, if time is winding down, if time as we know it is winding down forward towards an ending point, then what existed before time as we know it has to be eternity. That which by nature is infinite. We're finite. We have a beginning, we have an end. That which has no end at all, it's eternal. That which is not bound by the limitations of the temporal. Now we believe this because God is eternal, and He has promised to us eternal life. And we understand that eternal life should be understood by the believer primary, and most of all, not so much in life that never ends, but a quality of life, a God-like life. Secondly, that it won't end. Okay? Therefore, from the very beginning, God chose us before the foundation of the world, Paul says. Revealing to man that after this period of finite time, when it's over, eternity waits for man. Chronological time came out of eternity, and chronological time will go back into eternity and cease to be with the new heaven and the new earth. John tells us that he elected us from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8. Paul tells us from the beginning of time, 2 Thessalonians 3, 18. Paul again tells us before time began, 2 Timothy 1, 9. Which means that God knew all along what he would create. And that he would create this world, man, and that all of this would be ruined by man. And then he would work out a plan of redemption through salvation history so that man would be able to spend eternity with him one day. It's so beyond our understanding. Because we come up with the questions, well, if God knew that the fall was going to happen, why did he let it happen? <laughs> That's the kind of questions we would ask. Why didn't God stop Adam? Or why God didn't stop you living the way you did? 
Because he's giving you a free will. And he gives you a choice. Because he doesn't force you to go to heaven. He gives you a choice to go to heaven. But he doesn't force you to go to heaven. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yet we know not all will come to repentance because some people don't want to go to heaven. It's a choice. So he grants man the free will as a moral agent with the ability to make choices, one being determining his eternal destiny. Second Peter 3.9 He's not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. But God doesn't force his will upon people. But he's not willing that any should perish. Those responding to God's initiation through the gospel and faith are part of the elect from the foundation of the world. The called out ones. But never think of election without human responsibility. It would be an extreme. It would be like you going out there in a rowboat and only having one oar, and you would be going in circles. You need two oars to go straight. <laughs> if you just do one oar, you're just going in circles. You have both oars, then you can go straight. You need the vine part and the human part, as the Bible teaches very clearly. The following has been said about election and free will. The whosoever wills, are the elect, and the whosoever wants are the non-elect. Whosoever wills, and whosoever wants. The use of the term elect, elected, or election in the scriptures appear 27 times in the Bible. The Hebrew word and the Greek word um, are presented to us. And the Greek has various forms uh, that I've just given to you in the English. And the term is used for different individuals. Therefore, the context is of the most importance for the proper interpretation, context. The term is used for Israel in Isaiah 45, 4, 65, 9, Matthew 24, 31, and other portions. The term is used for a lady in 2 John one thirteen, the term is used for the church in Romans eight thirty three, Colossians three twelve. The word is used for Israel and the church together. Matthew twenty four twenty four, Mark thirteen twenty two, Luke eighteen seven. The word is used for angels in First Timothy five twenty one. Examining all the places the term appears, not once is the term ever used to indicate a select group who alone have been predestined to be saved. Never. Listen to Dr. Ironstein as he declares, quote, Nowhere in the Bible are people ever predestined to go to hell, and nowhere are people simply predestined to go to heaven. Look it up and see. Predestination is always to some special place of blessing. What did verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1 say here? 
He says that he has blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus, and now he's enumerating the blessings. Predestination is not the blessing or service. Always. The word elect appears four times in the Old Testament. Once for the Messiah, three for Israel. The word appears in the New Testament also as elected 17 times. Election six times. Elect three times. And elected one time. When you sift through the 27 passages... One is left with only five pertaining to general subject of election. Romans 9.11, Romans 11.5, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, 1 Peter 1.2, and 2 Peter 1.10. All five have to do with election to service and blessing, not salvation, as you examine them. Once again... Let me quote grammarians, Greek scholars, because I am not. Marvin R. Vinson, an authority of biblical languages, explains, eklahi, which is the word for elect, or the root word, election is used of God's selection of men or agencies for special missions or attainments. Nowhere in the New Testament is there any warrant for the revolution doctrine that God predestined a definite number of mankind to eternal life and the rest to eternal damnation? Nowhere will you find it in Scripture. The elect of Calvinism are unconditionally elected without anything on their part, and since there is no election or predestination stated in the Bible by the word decree, they say it is the hidden mystery of God's will. How fitting. As you know, we've studied the word mystery, the word mysterion. In the New Testament, every word appears. It never means something hidden or concealed. It means something previously concealed but now made known. Every time it appears in the New Testament. The third chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith is entitled, O God's, of God's Eternal Decrees. Listen, Calvinist Bushwell and Hodge state that the decrees of God may be regarded as a complex decree, including all things. And yet the word decree doesn't appear in all they say. The word decree occurs 49 times and in 48 verses. The word decreed five times in five verses. The word decrees in the plural occurs twice in as many verses. Yet out of the 46 times the word decree is used only eight times is it connected to God. They concern certain things these eight times. The rain, the sea, Jesus Christ, the heavens, consumption, the sand, and Nebuchadnezzar. 
Out of the seven passages, none is said to be eternal. None involves election or predestination. Yet Calvinist says it's all over the Bible. Yet according to Calvinist, God's decree is his sovereign will imposed to override the free will of man from choosing either way. They have no choice. Claiming this as the secret things of God and they point to Deuteronomy 29.29. A little bit out of context. Ignoring and denying the responsibility of man to believe in faith and repent. You see, God always gives reasons for saving some and damning others in the Bible. You know that if you study the Word of God. Listen to Isaiah, Isaiah 1.18. He says, come now, let us reason together. God asked sinful man to reason with him, to repent. Now, if they're unconditionally elected, why plead? They've already been elected to damnation or salvation, right? It makes no sense for God to plead. He's pleading that they repent. If they were elect, it's useless. God tells Israel that he punished Israel for the wickedness of their doing in Deuteronomy 28, 20. If they were elected to damnation, then they have to be elected for the wickedness they do. Based on God's decrees, as Calvinists say. Yet he punishes them for what he made them do. Does that sound just to you? Does that sound like a God of holiness? No. God tells Jeremiah, Israel had forsaken his law in Jeremiah 9.13. If they were unconditionally elected, how could they forsake the law? If they have no free will or respond to the law. The unloving depiction of God by Calvinism is insulting to God and the scriptures. Attributing evil to God, then merely saying it is just because God is sovereign while being clearly contradictory to the revelation of God and the nature of his word. John 3.36, listen. He who believes, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but but the wrath of God abides in him. Not he who is unconditionally elected, but he who believes. That's man's responsibility. Believes is the key on human perspective, on the human side. The two doctrines of divine election and man's free will are not in contradiction, but rather complementary truths and biblical the elect are constituted not by absolute decree but by acceptance of the conditions of God's call they repent at the hearing of the gospel by faith again we just cannot understand them to their full logical and rational sense we can't reconcile them because we don't have omniscience, we don't know everything, and we certainly don't have foreknowledge, knowledge beforehand of all that can be.
It's irreconcilable. So the time of the choosing was before the foundation of the world. That shouldn't shock us. Nobody should object to that. God is God. He can do stuff like that without being unjust. Thirdly, notice he gives us the purpose of the choosing. The Apostle Paul associated those chosen by the Father with his holiness. That we should be holy. The holiness of God is a moral attribute, if you were with us when we studied the attributes of God. And it's communicable, able to be imparted to us, his creatures. There's, there's attributes of God that are non-communicable. In other words, he doesn't share them with us. Omniscience, omnipresence, we don't, he don't share that with us. But holiness, he does. Okay? And many other ones. Since God is morally pure to perfection, then we must conclude that God has to be separate from sinful man. These are the two basic and most common ways the word holy and holiness is used in both the Old Testament and the New. The perfection of God's holiness is exalted. The separation and sanctification or consecration of God. He's distinct and separate from man. Holiness is the attribute that most glorifies God and stands out in Scripture. Some have called it the attribute of attributes. Others think it is not an attribute, but his very essence. But it is an attribute. The word holy is found about 45 times in the book of Exodus. 77 times in Leviticus. 32 times in Numbers, 20 times as Deuteronomy. That's just four books of the Pentateuch. He is called the Holy One of Israel 30 times in Isaiah and only 20 times in the rest of the Old Testament. Notice the Apostle Paul then revealed that the Father chose us in Christ. With a purpose. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The design of election is for purification. Sinners are sinful by nature due to the fall. You and I, we, uh, we gravitated towards sin before being in Christ like ants to honey. Jelly. They're just there. Yet fallen man has a potential for good, even in his fallen state, because we're created in the image and likeness of God. All of us have known men and women, whether they were friends of us when we were growing up or maybe as we've gotten older, men and women who are just bad news. They're evil. But we even know that they have their moments of doing some good. And when people like that do some good, it shocks people. So even the worst of people have potential to do some good at some time. Because we're creating the image and likeness of God. But our bent is towards evil. Sinners saved have the potential for holiness. 
due to God's intervention now because we're born again. That's a communicable attribute. We are holy. It says here, the word is hagios, expressing the inner and moral distinction once a person is saved, as the grace of God begins to work in their heart. When I was born again, the weekend before, I was up in Santa Barbara pottering, partying. And um, I came back down and I got saved through an eye accident um, in the Kung Fu studio and that. And the next weekend, I was sitting in a Bible study. Night and day. The difference the Holy Spirit, the new birth made in my life. Do you know how many times I try to quit smoking? And I always decided right after I brought a new pack of Winstons. And I throw it away come Monday. But then, you know, Friday comes. And that's party time. Go right back to it. The minute I was born again, everything went. Even my potty mouth. (laughs) God did for me what I could never do for myself. I heard the gospel. I responded that I agreed with God. I asked him to forgive me, repented of my sins, and he came in my life and transformed my life. That's the miracle of God. You have experienced the same thing. Notice he says they were without spot and were accepted by God. It means without any inherent defect now being saved. The word for holy there, hagios, is the same root word for the word saint, sanctify, sanctified or sanctification in the New Testament. Uh, The word holy, that's the root. The instant a person is saved, their sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ and that person is regenerated. This holiness is the outcome of regeneration by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when a person trusts Jesus Christ and believes that he died in their place and became sin and they repent, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. It's put on their behalf, on their account, and the Father sees them as in Christ. And the sinfulness of that person was placed upon Christ at the cross and he made the payment for it. There's a result being that the saved sinner is holy before Jesus now, in fellowship with God, having access to his throne, a member of the family of God. Now the goal for saved sinners is also to be without blame before Jesus. This speaks of the outward conduct. The holiness is inside. Holiness is inside what God sees. Blameless here, without fault, is the conduct outside. What people see. Again, this is the result of the choice by God's election. 
and my response to the gospel. The phrase without blame means without rebuke or faultless. Um, it's used later on in chapter 5, verse 27 for the church, Colossians 1.22 for the sinner and other passages. And the idea is having no blame or fault as acquired. The word was used in the Septuagint. The Greek translation, the Hebrew writings for the sacrifices that were presented to the priests. And you know that a, a sacrifice would be presented. The priest would look it over and make sure that it was um, um, one of the words here that, that without blame means any inherent blemish. Um, the, the perfection was that it's perfect, it's whole, it's not, it doesn't have a short leg or anything else, but this is an inherent blemish that came upon him that's outward that can be seen. This doesn't mean sinless perfection, but rather ongoing cleansing by confessing our sins to Jesus, as 1 John 2.1, um, that we confess our sins. Uh, he's the intercessor. Lord, for our defense. The fact of being without blame is by the imparting now of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when we're, when we're trusting Christ for salvation, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Once we're saved, then God imparts to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ to live a sanctified life every day. So first imputed, then imparted to us as we depend upon Him, as we draw from Him. But notice also, the passion of a saved sinner is to be before Jesus, motivated by his love. The love of God. The word love, as you know, is agape. God's divine love. It appears ten times in the letter here. In another form, agapao, nine times in the letter. So just in those two forms, 19 times. Some say the word love goes with verse 4, which would mean we are to be found living in love and walking in God's love. Others say the word love should go with verse 5 and that it refers to the motive of God's predestination for us. While both expressions can be found in Scripture, John 4.17 and John 3.16, it seems more preferable that it be taken with verse 4 as our New King James or King James Version has it. Since it would be kind of redundant if it went with verse 5 to say, in love, having predestinated us, and then at the end saying, the good pleasure of His will. That's redundant. It's the same thing. So, I take it as it's in our text here that it goes with verse 4. Again, the received text, the King James and the New King James, holds it with verse 4. But now the RSV and others with verse 5. But I believe that this is a better translation. Though I stand in the minority, not the majority. <laughs> Listen carefully. The late founder, the leader of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, listened to his words from the distinctives that he wrote of Calvary Chapels. And it's in the bookstore, the distinctives, what we believe. Quote, We neither are five-point Calvinists nor are we Armenians. We do not believe in the, 
We do believe in the security of the believer. We don't believe that you can lose your salvation because you lost your temper or told a lie. And as a result, need to go forward next Sunday night to repent and get re-saved. You know, we do that in extreme Pentecostal churches. You're saved one day, you're lost the next, stuff like that. And he knows he came out of Foursquare. By the way, I don't know if you know that. Okay? Uh, So he's familiar with that type of atmosphere. He says, we believe... In the security of the believer, but we also believe in the perseverance of the saints. We don't believe that because you are a saint, you will necessarily persevere. But that you need to persevere because you are a saint. Then he quotes Jesus. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciple indeed. Quoting John 8.31. Then he quotes Jesus again, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. He quotes John 15, 6 through 7 there. Now he says, Jesus himself brought up the possibility of a person not abiding in him. So we seek to take a balanced position rather than getting on one side and pressing the five-point Calvinism. End of quote. Now it's important that you understand what we believe as Calvary Chapel. This is the founder and the leader. This is what he taught for 50-some years. And some people are moving away from this. Holiness is commanded of the believer. Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16 Holiness is the will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 Holiness makes us one with God, and His holiness keeps us Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer, John 17, 11, to the Father. Holiness comes through the Word, John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy Word, thy Word is truth. Holiness is the evidence that I believe He is coming and desire to be with Him when He returns, 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure, verse 4 says. We are to present a body, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not fashioned to this world system, but be transformed, metamorphosed, by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's the conclusion of all the doctrine of Romans to that point. Paul puts it this way. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. There's a word, hagios, same root. And sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the holy meteor sanctifying his church. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 tells us that. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, and 1 Timothy 2, 5. Listen to Jude, 
24 and 25. There's only one chapter. Those are verses. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. The threefold division of the letter of, to the Ephesians is divided by the love of God. I gave it to you the introduction. Listen to it. The wealth of the believer by the love of God. Chapter 1, 2, and 3. The walk of the believer in the love of God. Chapter 4, 5 to 6, 9. The warfare of the believer through the love of God. Ephesians 6, 10 through 24. In the love of God. By the love of God. In the love of God. And through the love of God. Wealth, walk, and warfare. It's what's to motivate everything in our life. If you do works and do give away things, but if you don't have agape love as your motive, it's useless. Corinthians 4, 5 says that we will go through the beam of seat of Christ and God will judge the motive of our hearts. God is never impressed of how much I do or what I do. What He's impressed is if I do it out of agape love. Then he will reward us. It's the motive. Why do I do what I do? And how? Speaking of my attitude. The purpose of the choosing. Is to be transformed. So if you want to claim election. Or as we'll see in next verse predestination. There must be transformation going on. No transformation and of election. Simple. Real simple. And so, this is the proclamation of election marked by these three truths. The one who did the choosing was God. The time of the choosing was from before the foundation of the world. And the purpose of the choosing is to be transformed. I can't reconcile them. But they're both biblical. Angels desire to look into the things that God has for us. Because they they don't know the future. They're just blowing their mind one day at a time how God works things out. Amazing. What about election? (laughs) It's biblical. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. We pray, Lord, you continue to deal with our hearts as we grow and we study. Father, um, that we just rest in you. Father, we pray for everybody here tonight, and we pray that you be glorified. We pray that in all things you would be the one directing and guiding us as we become Bereans, from day to day, studying and examining the scriptures, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. 
You alone make that decision. God initiates through the gospel and his word. The Holy Spirit illuminates and convicts. And you alone are the one that either agrees or disagrees with God. And he will honor your choice either way. So if you don't know Jesus tonight, you can ask him to forgive you and be born again right where you sit. Maybe you're over the internet. You can do that yourself right where you sit. It's a prayer of repentance by faith, believing that Jesus became sin for you, paid the price for you, and rose from the dead so that you can call upon him. So this is your prayer of repentance. If you want to be born again, you'll be asking Christ to come into your life and transform you. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.